Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Luke chapter 12, 13 is the start of an exchange where Jesus tells a parable. The parable is the parable of the rich fool. In Bibles that have titles put by the publisher, most of them will say the parable of the rich fool. That is the standard name for this. It is one of the more popular, it is one of the most parodied and lampooned um, stories. It is the most uh, illustrated, I guess, in children's books. It is a very important story. Now, what is the setting? How did Jesus get to this story? Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is teaching about persecution and the Holy Spirit's role when we are being persecuted. In previous chapters, he has already had a run-in with the Pharisees where they have tried to set him up with trick questions. And he then says, tells the people who are following him, and it's a larger crowd at this time, He says, beware of the Pharisees and their false teaching. And then he says that people are going to be called up by the Sanhedrin and by magistrates. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say that we don't have to worry about future persecution. And right in the middle of this, some yahoo in the crowd decides to interrupt Jesus. And he says, hey, teacher... And if you're reading in a red-letter Bible, you get pages and pages of red letters because Jesus is in the middle of the largest teaching section in the book of Luke. And then right in the middle of it, you got black text in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now... Teacher in Hebrew is rabbi, so he is giving some level of authority to Jesus. He is lifting Jesus up, perhaps trying to uh, get his attention by calling him a very important title in that day. Now, if this person, this person in the crowd, this someone in the crowd knew his Bible, and he most likely did, the whole idea of inheritance laws are explained in extreme detail in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus that as you pass things down from generation to generation, God had a plan. God gave through Joshua and the taking of the land, and at the end of the book of Joshua, The land is divided up by the tribes, and God's plan, God's command, is that if this block was given to the tribe of Benjamin, God can come back a thousand years later, and this land, this block, 
will still belong to people from the tribe of Benjamin. Land does not transfer between tribes. And if you have a lot of kids, if you have, um, say, 12, Jacob had 12 sons, and the, the parents die, how is the stuff, the land, the business, the crops, the houses supposed to be divided up? Well, God says the eldest born son gets it all. And you say, well, man, that's not fair. What if I'm son number five, for example? You say, well, that's not fair at all. But God's plan is to keep things in the family. And if you have five sons and the father passes away and you now have to divide whatever the holdings are by five, you may have to sell the land. You may have to sell the sheep and the goats. You may have to sell the houses. You may have to sell things to get cash to divide up the money because you can't say we have three acres of land and you get one-fifth of this. That's difficult because people would say, well, I want the money. I want to you know, do things my own. And you lose the ancestral ownership of the land, and you say, well, why is this important? Why is this something that, you know, will ever happen? Well, if you read in 2 Kings, the story of Elijah, Ahab was a very wicked king, and right next door to the palace, a guy by the name of Naboth had a vineyard. And it's called in 2 Kings his ancestral vineyard which means if you could get the birth line of Naboth, you could trace him all the way back to when Joshua was given out land, and because of the inheritance laws, this land has stayed as one piece and has stayed in the family. Now, there's other commands about the eldest son not letting other people in the family starve to death, if you're very poor, the eldest son is not supposed to be so greedy that he just keeps everything to himself and forget the rest of the family. That is also talked about in the book of Deuteronomy. So who is this someone who is yelling at Jesus? Logically, knowing that, this is a younger son because he didn't get anything. And the elder son is probably with him. They probably travel as a family to go see Jesus. And he is asking Jesus to change the law, to change the inheritance laws that are in the Bible. Now there is provision in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of, I think, Joshua. If there's a question... You have twins, and we don't really know what time each one was born, or something like that. You would go to the synagogue and talk to the rabbi. And the rabbi would look at all the data and make a judgment on this. So there is situations where the trained, highly trained rabbis of the synagogues, even in Jesus' day, could make judgments and interpretations of the law. And so looking at this, because Jesus was not attached 
to a synagogue. Jesus was not a rabbi in the classic sense of other rabbis that existed in his day that had offices and teaching schedules at synagogues, that these brothers, this family, this younger brother, probably tried all the local rabbis and didn't get an answer that he liked. And so he was trying to circumvent the law. He was asking Jesus, who was already kind of presenting himself as a, as a radical, if you will, a reformer of the law, he was asking Jesus to come up with a ruling that would cause the younger son to get half or more of all the inheritance so that he could be probably like the prodigal son and go wasted and riotous living. And there's that story in the book of Luke. And so Jesus' response is, who made me? your judge or arbiter? And that's a good question, that Jesus did not come, if we look at the full picture of Jesus, Jesus did not come to figure out our financial problems. Jesus did not come to manage land disputes. Okay, there were already... Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, lawyers, rabbis, a whole class of people who spent all day poring over the Old Testament. And if you had a question about land or about money or about marriage or about something like that, you would go ask them. Jesus didn't come for that. Jesus came to use these words to judge and arbitrate our salvation. He came to open a way for us to be saved, and his job, if you will, now is interceding for us. He is at the right hand of God, uh, mediating. We call him the mediator. He's mediating between us and God. And if you, if you look at the value of that, then the value of a you know, inheritance of 50 bucks doesn't seem too great, doesn't seem too important. And so Jesus then uses this, instead of going back to the persecution teaching, he then goes into uh, a teaching about this person's statement. This person clearly has money in too high of a level. And Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You covet something when you want something that somebody else has, so you can't get it, or it's too expensive or too difficult to get, therefore it would take most of your time or income to get, and all you do is think about, I want this thing, I want this person. You can covet an animal, you can covet somebody else's spouse, you can covet anything out there that you aren't supposed to have is the best way to look at it from the teachings of God, is that there's this thing that I want so bad it becomes all-consuming. And apparently this person who shouted out the question, Jesus, knowing his heart, knowing his mind, probably saw that he was all-consumed with this inheritance. The only thing he could think about was how unfair the Bible is 
God said, I want it this way, this way, this way, and his view is, that's unfair. I don't want it, and I want Jesus to change it. Of course, Jesus never changed the law. He did not come to destroy the law, as he said. He came to fulfill it on your behalf. Jesus then tells a story, and he tells a story of a man, a man who is a farmer, and the farmer had a great increase. He had bumper crop one year, and his decision is, and he thinks about this, he ponders this, and his decision that he comes up with is tear down the old barns and build bigger barns, and then he will be able to retire, in essence. He'll be able to relax eat, drink, and be merry. He never has to work again because of this fantastic bumper crop that he had of grain. And so if you look at this, and this is a, you can read any commentary on this, and everybody has the same count. You've got four verses, and he uses the personal pronoun I six times. He is talking with himself. He is debating with himself, he is wondering with himself, he is planning with himself, and he even talks with his soul. Now, generally, I don't say, hey, soul, and talk to my soul, but he does. He is the most important person to himself, so who should he, who should he counsel with but himself? And so he talks to his soul, the eternal part of him, and he decides to do this thing. And the problem is, God says, you fool. And when, okay, if you look at the biblical definition of fool, the biblical definition of fool is someone who does not believe God exists. So if God is calling you a fool, that's pretty ironic. That is, God knowing your heart knowing your mind so well that he knows, God knows that God has no place in his life. And if you look at this, this, this story, of course, is giving, some may say, an extreme picture of a non-believer, but I think even today this is a lot more common than we want to think. We have to uh, understand that there are Millions of people on a daily basis in this country who are making decisions, who are making choices with zero prayer, without even opening the Bible, a concordance perhaps, to see what it says about property or what it says about money or what it says about marriage or what it says about vacation or the whole thing of not even consulting with God to make decisions is a dangerous position because what God says is, tonight your soul is required of you, and this isn't the point of the parable, but it is a truth that our life lasts as long as God says. Everybody has a due date on their life, and we do not know when it is, we do not know uh, why. God just chooses. God does what he does, and he 
causes each individual to be born at a particular time, and he calls each person home at a particular time. And there is a thought, and I believe it is accurate from Scripture, that the day you're born and from eternity past, God knows exactly how long your life is going to be. And for some people, he chooses a short life. And for some people, he chooses a very long life. And we can say, well, that's unfair. We, we don't like God's choices. But yet it's God's choice that nobody on this earth can be born without God saying, be born. And nobody on this earth will die without God saying to their soul, it is required of you today. And when God requires your soul, he requires it in one of two directions, either paradise with him, or as the New Testament calls it, torment, which is without God. And there's a parable about that one too. And the idea that God is the chooser of when we live and when we die, we have to have more of a focus. Uh, things that I've been reading talk about having a life that is practice for eternity. And so you do things today, you do things in your life on this earth to get ready for and prepare for eternity and things like Bible study, there's two things you get to take to heaven with you. Money is not one of them. As it says, you can't take it with you. But what can you take with you? You will take those who you share the gospel with. Those you share the gospel with and they accept, they will go with you to heaven. Perhaps not at your time, but eventually, when you go to heaven, you will see all those you shared the gospel with. And secondly, there will be the Bible in some form in heaven. And so if you are a studier of Scripture, now you can be a studier of Scripture in heaven. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle that the Word of God will never pass away. And he was speaking when he was there about the scrolls of the Old Testament we now have printing presses, and so books like this, Bibles like this, will be in heaven in some form. I don't know if it'll be big scrolls or if it'll be books or if it'll be on some sort of heavenly tablet that you can boot up and see the Bible. But there will be Bibles in heaven, and Bible study will continue. But you will have an opportunity to get questions answered because God's right over there. So you will be studying your Bible, and if there's a difficult passage, you can actually ask Paul and ask Peter and ask James and ask Jesus what they meant and what this means, and we can continue to grow and learn for all eternity about God because He is inexhaustible. So what is the point of this parable? The point of this parable is that this person got, from his view, lucky. This person had a bumper crop, and because of this luck, because of this great thing that was done, because of the ground, to him, he is going to take care of himself for many more years. For many years, he will take his ease. He will relax. He will eat, drink, and be merry. But that is not the point. If you look at 
what caused his plants to grow. God is the one who causes plants to grow. God invented the whole seed and farming thing that we do. If you read back in the Old Testament, way back, it was God that taught Adam and Eve how to cultivate, and then when they sinned, how to cultivate with weeds, because God is the teacher of how to manage the earth, how to work the earth, and way back to Adam and Eve, he was teaching them, and it's been brought through. Now you can, you can go to the store and buy some pumpkin seeds, and go to the bay and throw them in, and then wonder why it doesn't grow, wonder why it doesn't Pumpkins pop out of the bay. And that's because God has given rules for how farming has to work. And he is the one who causes rain to fall. He is the one that caused the sun to shine. And he is the one who gave this fool a bumper crop. And this person should, when he saw the great increase, he should have gone to the local synagogue and praised God. He should have fallen to his knees and thanked God for this wonderful bumper crop. But God has no thought. And whenever we are in a place where there is a great bounty, where there is a great blessing, we need to understand that it is God that gives the increase, that if there is something going well, whether it be investments or whether it be a job or whether it be family relationships. It is God who is behind the increase. It is God who gives the increase. And if you say, look what I did. I'm such a great person with, you know, my stocks or whatever, a great stock picker. That is the improper way to look at it. You praise God if it goes up or if it goes down, because God is in charge of every little thing that goes on in our lives. Now, the point of this, the teaching of this, is that if you look at your worth, if you look at your value, if you look at your financial situation and you like it, and you pat yourself on the back, most people, even today will say, if they had this bumper crop, they may tear down the barns and build bigger ones. But the idea is he's probably going to try again next year to get an even bigger thing. He's, you know, tried this certain fertilizer, and he's going to double it and see what happens. What should he have done? If he was a godly person... What sort of things should he have done? Well, he lives in a poor area of the world. Palestine, Jerusalem, Israel was a very poor, desert-rich land uh, conquered by the Romans. And for him to perhaps share, perhaps say, I've got this great increase, I'm going to feed the whole town for the next three months. Okay? That is a God-centered thing. Donate it to a charity in that way. Do things to increase people's value in your mind. Also, he says, I'm going to tear down the smaller barns and build bigger ones. 
And the logic, if you were kind of planning this, uh, you say he has like three barns, but they're way too small. Uh, if you just want storage, then wouldn't it be cheaper? Wouldn't it be more efficient to build three or four other small barns? If you've got to tear them down, you've got to put the grain somewhere while you're building the barns. And if you build bigger ones, then you may see, oh, I've got room to fill. I'm going to, you know, do more stuff. But also the idea that if I build something bigger, then when you see it, you're going to go, wow, I'm putting this in the story, but you can definitely read it, that he wanted people who walked down the street to see his new barns and go, wow, that's big. He wanted to impress people as well as store grain. There's a dozen ways to store grain secretly, subtly. Building huge barns is not the way to do it. So he has other motivation of not only feeling he did it all, but he also wants people to notice that he did it all and be impressed. They want people to walk by his palace and his big barns and say, wow, I want to, you know, I'm going to buy his book because I want to have that increase and I want to have the life of leisure that he has. And so as this teaching of not focusing on money, not focusing on the increase, the increase is not our only thing that we have, that the teaching continues. And when Paul is talking to Timothy, Timothy is a young pastor who is the protege of Paul, and Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Timothy to teach his student. In 1st Timothy 6.10, he's talking about money, and he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money is not evil. Money is neutral. Money is just a piece of metal, or a piece of paper, we put value on it. And I have actually met people who call themselves Christian, who through questioning will say they really love money, that money is their love, that money is their focus, that what they're doing in life is about money, that you love money. And if you love somebody, in this world, and you love somebody, whether it be a good friend or whether it be a family member or spouse or a child or a parent or whatever, if you love this person, then you, you seek the best for them. You want them to have the best. You want them to love you back. You want them to like you. And so the idea of unconditional favor toward money is the most dangerous position a person can put themselves in. To love money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, Money's not evil. The love of money, what I treat money like, what I view money like, 
I will begin to do all manner of evil to get more money. I will do whatever it takes to get more money. And if I call myself a believer and I get into this mode of loving money, people have left the faith. People have left the church because if I love money, I don't want to be in a place where people are encouraging me to give it away because I don't want to give my money away because I love my money. And so people tend to not go to church if they are in this mode, and it says, are pierced themselves with many pangs. The word for pangs is birth pangs, is the, the difficulty uh, of a hard birth, and those who have had children may understand the pain that occurred at that moment, that that, life, that pain becomes a pain of life that you always never have enough, you always want more, you always just quite haven't arrived yet. And that is the focus of people who love money. Jesus said, you can't love money and God. If you love money, you do not love God. If you love God, you do not love money. In Mark, Jesus is telling a parable, and one of the Parts of the parable is a seed that goes in the weeds. And he says, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and prove it unfruitful, is that money is deceitful. There is a promise that money will give you, and it is a deceitful that money is a liar, that money will not give you what it promises, and the more you seek after it. Now, money is a tool, and I would much rather have $100 in my checking account than 10 okay? Having money to do things is fine. Loving money and sacrificing everything in your life for money is not. And then you end up with a person who is just surrounded by his money, with no friends around, uh, a very Scrooge sort of story is that in the uh, Christmas Carol, when you have the ghost of Christmas future and Scrooge is now looking at his death and what happens? You have all the scavengers from town break into his house and start stealing even his, his bed curtains is that I can have a very comfortable life now, but there will come a day when God requires my soul, and who then will get all of my stuff? We need to be, as it says in the conclusion, not rich to myself, but rich to God. And if I am rich to God, you say, well, what does that look like? There is a list in Galatians 5 of things that you do that are relational, that is rich toward God, and that list is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, and self-control, that these are attitudes that we have in interpersonal relationships of how we treat people. And if we treat people because you are the greatest treasure that God has on this earth, God could care less about big diamonds or big gold mines or whatever, you are the only treasure 
that God cares about when it's all said and done and Jesus Christ comes back and the final judgment that is done, you people will be welcomed into heaven without anything that you had here. No wealth, no homes, no cars. Only people and how you treat people. And if you are a loving person here, it'll be much easier for you to be a loving person in heaven because the people that you love here will be with you to love in heaven. We must constantly think about what I'm doing for myself and what I'm doing for God. I make choices. I pray about it. I make decisions. I search the scriptures. I do things in life that require me to interface with people. I think about what God would want me to do and how God would want me to act. And in doing that, I am rich toward God. And the idea here is if I'm rich to myself, then it's all about money. But if I'm rich to God, there's no real money, no real cash involved. Today, it's mostly time. It's mostly attitude. It's mostly um, giving of myself, which is free. You know, you don't have to earn yourself. You've already got yourself. You give of yourself to other people, and that is what it means to be rich to God. Am I always thinking of myself or am I always thinking about Jesus and what he would have me do? Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this day. I pray that you would cause each of us to look at our soul and see if it is focused on money or if it is focused on you. We do pray for blessings. We do pray for providence. We do pray for you to take care of our needs. But Lord, we always realize that it came from you, that it isn't all about me and all the great things that I do. It's all about you and all the great things you do through me. Lord, we praise you for that. And ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask all this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.